0: Welcome to The Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker.
1: Here's a joke. How do you find Will Smith in the snow?
2: I don't know how. Look for Fresh prints. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, And from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party Download, an hour of food, culture, and humor to fuel your party conversation.
0: You just got a joke from True Blood star Joe Manganiello that'll help break the ice. He's among the stars of the movie Magic Mike XXL, which comes out this week. Later in the show, he'll answer your etiquette questions with wisdom like this. Keep it above the nipples. Garrison Keillor gave us that same advice. It's unforgettable. Plus, artist and musician
2: Deventer Van Hart stops by and talks about mysticism and honey. Also coming up, documentary director Liz Garbus tells us what happened to singer Nina Simone. Author Rebecca Mackay imagines Bach as a boyfriend. And Brendan examines what will happen when restaurants go to the dogs. But first, let's start the party with small talk.
0: All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. From the U.S. Supreme Court, the subsidies
2: for Obamacare have been upheld.
3: The Confederate battle flag is on the defensive. The U.S. Supreme Court has ruled that same-sex marriages are legal in all 50 states.
0: Now for something you might not have heard, we are joined by Richard Lawson. He is a columnist and movie reviewer for Vanity Fair, Richard What story are you going to be talking about this weekend?
4: I'm going to be talking about the rediscovery of what is being called the greatest cinematic pie fight of all time. Okay. Is that a high bar? Well, I mean, <laughs> we've all seen someone getting hit in the face with a pie in like old timey, yes. mm-hmm, You know, Keystone. I don't know if tops. I've
0: seen it, but yeah, it just lives in my memory. As or yeah, you've probably kind of seen cliche.
4: like uh, like homages to it. Maybe yes. not the originals, um, but it was a really popular thing in like the early 1900s, and then it sort of fell out of favor. But in 1927, um, Laurel and Hardy made a movie called The Battle of the Century. Mm-hmm. That the centerpiece, the sort of big moment in the in the film, is a pie fight that involves 3,000 pies being thrown into people's faces. Why does that sound so awesome? Well, it sounds amazing. I mean, so apparently they bought the entire day's worth of output from the Los Angeles Pie Company. <laughs> of course. That's the power of old Hollywood. Well, yeah, I mean, in 1927, that's absolutely something that they had. Yeah. Um, and so then they just threw them in people's faces, and it was long held to be like this amazing pie fight scene, but it disappeared. So if this is the greatest pie fight in history, how did it disappear? It just kind of got lost to history and sort of reels you know, were thrown out, but then it was rediscovered in the archives of this film private film collector. He didn't know he had it mm. because everyone assumed it was gone, mm-hmm. but someone was sifting through all this stuff after he died, and they said, oh, my God, this is the— The Citizen Kane of pie fights so
0: does this mean that we're going to see a pie fight renaissance in modern comedy
4: I hope so apparently in 1927 this did spark something of a pie renaissance (laughs) All right, (laughs) so maybe we're due I'm sure Judd Apatow is on it (laughs) Uh,
2: Richard Lawson thank you so much for the small talk thank you and now time for cocktails once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our tart, refreshing history lesson with booze. First, the history part. This week back in 1846, an instrument was patented that came to define jazz music. Eventually, Michelle Philippi tells the tale.
5: Like a great jazz solo, the history of the saxophone goes all over the map. It starts in 19th century France when a Parisian instrument maker named Adolphe Sax got an idea for a super instrument. It'd have the powerful volume of a brass horn, but you'd be able to play it fast and nimbly, like a woodwind. Soon, he'd worked up a prototype, a kind of mutant offspring of a clarinet and a French horn. Sax dreamed of classical orchestras adopting his invention, but they generally found the sax sound too, quote, imprecise. Instead, saxes made their first big splash in French military bands, where their loudness was much appreciated. Later, musicians on the vaudeville circuit took a shine to the instrument, because, among other things, you could make it sound pretty silly. It wasn't till the 20s that New Orleans musician Sidney Bechet made the sax a jazz standard. A clarinetist, he was sick of his instrument getting drowned out by louder cornets in ensembles. So when he came across a soprano sax while on tour in London, he knew he'd found his weapon. Bechet's soulful sax sound caught audiences' imaginations big bands started making room for show stuffing sax solos. And by the time bebop jazz rolled around, sax players were frontmen, making sounds the instrument's inventor never imagined. John Coltrane once described his own style as, quote, starting in the middle of a sentence and moving in both directions at once.
2: So that was the history. Now for the drink to serve with it. I'm on the line with Mike Miles. He is owner of the restaurant and bar Miles Lab in Elkhart, Indiana, where a company called Con Instruments was the first in America to make saxophones in the 1880s. It's still home to a bunch of instrument manufacturers. And actually, I understand you just had a jazz fest there in Elkhart last weekend, Mike?
6: Yes, that's correct. The 28th annual jazz fest here. All volunteer... Supported, and they do it every Father's Day weekend in in June.
2: All right, so Elkhart is a hotbed of musicality. Uh, So this was probably a pretty easy task for you. Tell us what drink that history inspired.
6: Well, we came up with the uh, Brass Bell. The drink is going to be in a martini form, so the shape of the glass would look significantly like the the bell part of the saxophone horn.
2: Oh, yeah, kind of uh, opens up to a wide mouth. Yes. All right, so what do you put into this bell-like martini glass Uh,
6: we are using uh, a French cognac to you know harken back to the the French aspect of jazz of
2: course the French origins of the instrument
6: and then uh, citrus vodka why that Uh, well our restaurant is homage to my family who started a company called Miles Lab in Elkhart, and they were the number two producer of citric acid in the world for many, many years. So.
2: Wow, that is a huge stretch for that ingredient, but yeah, I really yeah. appreciate the effort.
6: <laughs> uh, and the flavor's <laughs> good. That helps. And then uh, we use uh, bar syrup or simple syrup and then uh, fresh-squeezed orange juice here. So uh, the color is kind of that brassy color of the saxophone, and put it in a martini glass and looks like the saxophone.
2: That sounds fantastic. I was thinking, though, it should have maybe like a a swizzle stick straw so that you could blow into it, right?
6: Right, sure. What we really need is a a reed-like straw.
2: sure, just, oh, man, if you could manufacture swizzle stick straws with a reed on it, (laughs) that you could play them like an instrument, I think you'd be a millionaire. So, Brendan, in addition to being the capital of brass band instrument making, Mm -hmm. Elkhart, Indiana, is also world famous for making brass firefighting equipment. All right. I love that.
0: And actually, if you think about it, a saxophone has that upturned bowl part, which makes sense for bringing water to fires. So that's actually a great instrument for putting out fires.
2: (laughs) It really is a super instrument. That's right. Uh, People, you'll find all our cocktail recipes on our website. It's (laughs) DitterPartyDownload.org. All right, we've had a drink, learned some music history. Now this party needs a music playlist.
0: And here with that is Joy Williams. As half the critically acclaimed indie folk duo The Civil Wars, she won four Grammy Awards. She's also released several solo albums. Her latest is called Venus, and it comes out this week. Here she is with song suggestions.
7: Hey, my name's Joy Williams, and here is my Dinner Party soundtrack. It's fun to be asked to create a playlist because this is what I do on a really regular basis. My friends back in Nashville, we have a dinner party called The Night Circus. And uh, we get together and swap food and music. And um, music, much like food, is better when shared. So the first song that normally gets started during appetizers is Guilty by Al Boley.
4: Is it a thing?
8: Is it a crime? Loving you dear like I do.
7: If it's a crime, then I'm guilty, guilty for loving you. (laughs) He was from Mozambique and ended up becoming really famous in England and then over in the States for being a jazz crooner. And band leader in the 1930s.
8: What can I do? What can I say after I've taken the blame?
7: Al has this way of crooning, this high tenor that lilts and floats, and he always sang with so much freedom and joy.
8: Maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong, loving you feel like I do.
7: It blends in well. You can mingle and talk. It doesn't interrupt you while you're having a conversation with a friend. And for whatever reason, it's a very warm and welcoming sound, hearing music that could have been played on a very, very old record player, on a gramophone even. This is like the biggest jump that could happen. But if you come to the night circus dinner, we start in the 1930s, but we almost always wind up in the 1980s. Cars by Gary Newman is a famous favorite of the night circus, and there's normally people out of their chairs either air drumming or air keyboarding, because life is too short to take yourself too seriously.
8: Car, of to cars.
7: Rack of lamb we make a lot. We do a lot of filet mignon. I think for me having comfort food is much like listening to something from the 80s that you've heard a hundred times before. It can be a comfort too. So the third track is by a band from Berlin called The Acid, and they have a song called Animal. What I love about Animal is that there is so much sparseness to it. There is like a beautiful hit on a drum that is just so perfectly timed. And these almost ghost like vocals that are happening, it's almost what's not there. Like in art, you know, the negative space gives you the space to feel what it is that you need to feel. There's something about kind of getting a little bit quieter again, lingering and not rushing anything. It's almost like what happens at the end of our dinners where we're there so long that the candles start dripping wax on the tablecloth. I couldn't say that I would press play on a song of mine during a dinner party but maybe my song Woman Oh Mama could be that song that makes its way into a post dessert dance party.
5: Woman, you in the palm
7: of the Woman changing the mask on her face Woman standing with their feet in. I wrote it in Venice Beach, and there's drum circles that just happen for hours. I think that maybe that sort of like subconsciously seeped, you know, into my writing process that day, of uh, of wanting to make something that that felt like it can move your body.
0: Dinner Party soundtrack courtesy of Joy
2: Williams. Her new album is called Venus. It comes out later this week. All right, we're gonna take a break, but coming up, artist and musician Devendra Banhart and I start a disco band when the Dinner Party download continues. Welcome back to The Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano.
0: I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Later, Magic Mike star Joe Manganello answers your etiquette questions, and filmmaker Liz Garbus tells us the story of Nina Simone. But
2: first, let's meet our guest of honor. All right, and it's Devendra Banhart. His alternately gentle and psychedelic pop music has garnered him a cult-like following. He's collaborated with the likes of Beck and Antony and the Johnsons. But meanwhile, he's pursued a parallel career as a fine artist. He's shown at SF MoMA in MoCA Los Angeles. And his latest project is an art book called I Left My Noodle on Ramen Street. Of course. When we spoke, I mentioned the book's introduction, in which curator Jeffrey Deitch says Banhart's early musical tastes were formed by watching skateboard videos. So I asked if skateboard graphics had an impact on his visual art.
9: I think the graphics from a lot of those Powell skateboards were totally mystical to me. I mean, maybe the first time I... uh, See, that's the thing. I grew up reading, like, Hindu comic books. (laughs) I have these Eastern-influenced parents. okay, And so I've got these comic books of um, the story of Ganesh and and Shiva and um, the illustrated Bhagavad Gavita. And I remember the first time I saw some skater had this giant regal elephant on their deck. And I immediately recognized it as Ganesh. I'm like, oh, wow, that's cool. The the Hindu elephant god. Yeah. And I think that uh, you feel connected to it because you already know it, you recognize it, and then you just want to know more about it, I guess. But when did I feel like I want to be an artist? Actually, that happened in LACMA.
2: The Los Angeles County Museum of Art.
9: Yeah. They were showing Robert Frank's film called Pull My Daisy, and... That changed my life. I, 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 my mom thought I was high when when she picked me up. Literally, literally. She's like, "What are you on?" Because I was. It's something about it. How You're old something were you? About it. I, I mean, it must have been uh, fifteen. Can you describe it for those who haven't seen it? It's narrated by Jack Kerouac, and I think written by him. And um, Allen Ginsberg's in it, and a couple other of the beat yeah. poets. It's shot in black and white. It's in New York. It tells a little bit of the story of this kind of family having a party and there's a little kid that comes in and out and Jack is kind of narrating. He starts talking about, maybe it was the line, like one of the guys kind of getting drunk and uh, drinking beer and talking to a priest and he's like, is cockroach holy? Is grilled cheese holy? Something about that, I I, I remember that always stayed with me. It's interesting that the two examples
2: you've given so far, the the Ganesh God skateboard and the uh, movie, and specifically a line about holiness, both of these seem concerned with the idea of mysticism. And that's a word that's been ascribed to your art a lot. And I wonder if, can we talk about, there's a series of drawings at the beginning of your book that really seem to speak to this. Yeah. They use this recurring motif of two little hands. It's a little, delicate little drawing of two hands, cupped and held closely together. The palms are towards each other. And you make patterns out of dozens of these little cupped hands. You have a drawing of human figures who have a pair of these hands where their head should be. And to me, that evokes prayer or something. What feeling do you get from that? Yeah,
9: I think prayer was part of where that was coming from. I think some of that repetition is almost proof of love in a way. Here, I'm proving to you how much I, oh, let's say, care. So... This is how much I care about this. I'm going to repeat it this many times. And the symbol itself is such a archetype. It's almost like a some cheesy fridge magnet. But it's something like, something like in order to receive something, one must let go of something. You know, release what's in your hand in order to receive something. So the oh. hand becomes the symbol of, of, of giving and receiving. And it's also a symbol, of course, of prayer. And yeah. the repetition is um, why my... Art is a lot closer to the kind of music that I'd like to make. I I don't. I make pop music. Even if I don't want to write pop music, it somehow turns into what I think of as a pop song. But the, my art is closer to the kind of music I'd like to compose. Wait, meaning this repetitive, minimal. I'd like to, if I could just repeat one note over and over again. See, my work, my music doesn't have the space that I'd like it to have. And why, I can find why don't that. Well, I don't know. It's a good question. That's why I keep making music because I haven't even gotten close to, to to the mark. It seems like if if what you're
2: going for is repetition in space, uh, there are plenty of examples to to begin with. Uh, some of the work of Brian Eno and
9: well, yeah. To me, somebody who makes the most useful music, the most useful music, uh, is Harold Budd, and him, he's a master of space. What do you mean by useful? Like how uh, how useful how? Oh, I mean that it's the only thing, one of the few things at least that I can just have playing throughout the entire day and I just have the feeling that it's really augmenting being alive because it's keeping me very very present. I'm not just wandering off into the reverie that the song itself is kind of creating, which I can do if I focus on the song, and I'm not forgetting that the music is playing either. So it really does serve as a meditative tool and meditation obviously being being present.
2: We have two questions we ask everyone on the show, which I would like you to meditate upon. Uh, the first one is: If we were to meet you at a dinner party, what question should we not ask you?
9: Well, I dislike talking so much. Really, that doesn't—it doesn't feel like that to me. Well, because you're doing your, you know, Reiki juju on me, so you're you're really like pulling teeth. Uh. But. If really? we could sit in silence, that'd be really great. So the minute that they start talking, it's like, why'd I come to this party? So basically anything that anyone says to you is, is Any, wrong. I, I want no one to talk to me. Do <laughs> You know why? So Actually, no. But I'm going to tell qu- you something. I've had many people say to me, one of the saddest things that I can imagine, I saw somebody eating alone. Oh, God, that's like the saddest thing. That's crazy to me. You, you're not eating alone. You're eating with your food. I mean, there's this great quote, actually. It's a Buddhist quote, which is, when I go to eat, you know, my food is there for me. I should be there for it. And it's like how fun. You go eat. (laughs) I don't have someone talking to me, distracting me from this experience of eating my food. So I'd rather go to a dinner party alone together. That's like kind of my ideal dinner party.
2: All right, well, let me wrap up this conversation very quickly then for you. (laughs) Our second question is, tell us something we don't know. And this can be anything about yourself
9: or, you know, something you've learned about the world. I learned that, you know, honey doesn't spoil. um, Ever? Ever. It's the one thing, actually. It doesn't go bad.
2: That's really Um, good to know, actually, because I have seriously, I think, five jars of honey in various states of what looks like decay. Oh,
9: no. It'll crystallize, but that's it. Honey in a tomb, in, (laughs) in a pharaoh's tomb, you can still eat that. Oh man! Um, I learned I would that.
2: Love, somebody's going to put that on a menu, by the right? way. Right, honey <laughs> from Pharaoh's honey. Pharaoh's honey. There you go. Exactly. A single dollop, four million dollars. Um,
9: could we start like a disco band called Pharaoh's Honey? Because that's that's a pretty good name too. Yes, Oof. <laughs> that's good. Uh, so that's another thing I learned is that you and I are starting a disco band Great. called Pharaoh's Honey. I can't wait. We're going to be playing at uh, so the Kumbh Mela. That's the biggest religious festival on the planet. It's every twelve right. years. So we've got 12 years. I don't know when the next one is, actually. <laughs> we're playing the Kumbamela with Pharaoh's we're Honey. Playing, we're headlining the Kumbh mela.
2: Devendra Banhart, this weekend the LA County Museum of Art hosts a launch party for his new art book, I Left My Noodle on Ramen Street. Mm-hmm. And Brendan, this isn't Pharaoh Honey we're hearing. Yeah. This is just a solo band heart tune. You okay, because he, w- he and I are still working out our sound. You know, sure. We're, we're fielding offers from a lot of labels. Sure. And that explains it, your bell bottoms. Yeah.
0: Meanwhile, uh, folks, you can hear some non-imaginary music from Devendra's hero Harold Budd. It's at our website dinnerpartydownload.org. <laughs>
7: Time to eavesdrop.
2: Writer Rebecca McKay's short fiction appeared in the Best American Short Stories anthology for four consecutive years. This week, she released her first story collection. It's called Music for Wartime. Today, we overhear an excerpt.
10: Hi, I'm Rebecca McKay, and I'm going to be reading to you from the story called Couple of Lovers on a Red Background. It's one of the more surreal stories in the book, and it's about an unconventional romance. I've been calling him Bach so far, at least in my head. But now that he's started wearing my ex-husband's clothes and learned to work the coffee maker, I feel it's time to call him Johan. I said it out loud once, when I needed to get him off the couch before the super came up, but I'm not sure I pronounced it right, Germanic enough, because he didn't respond. Though I'm not sure I'd recognize my name either in the midst of someone screaming a foreign language. He got off the couch and went to the vacuum closet only because I practically carried him. No easy task, pushing someone so big and sweaty, even with the weight he's lost since he got here. I'd take him out for some real German food, but if there's one thing I've learned from the movies about caring for transplanted historical people, it's never to take them out in public among the taxis and police and department store mannequins. I've kept the curtains closed and the TV unplugged, but I did introduce him to the stereo so he'd have something to do every day while I'm gone. I'm proud of how carefully I did it. I dug my angel music box out of the Christmas decorations and played it for him. He seemed familiar with the concept, so I pointed back and forth between the angel box and the CD player. He was pleased, not at all scared, and now he's pushing buttons and changing discs like he was raised on Sony. He's fond of Mozart, unsurprisingly, but for some reason Tchaikovsky makes him giggle. When I played him Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy, I thought he was going to wet the couch. Five minutes later, he went to the piano and played the main part from memory, busted out laughing at certain phrases. If such a thing is possible, he played it sarcastically. He has a laugh, incidentally, like you'd expect from a pot-smoking 13-year-old. On the phone the other day, my mother said, Who's that laughing over there? At least she thinks I'm dating again. I decided I should look respectable in the presence of a genius, so I started freshening my face every day in the cab on the way home. I tidied the apartment too. I cleaned out the freezer, all those ziplocks of Larry's chili, and I finally filled in the missing light bulbs above the bathroom sink. I introduced Johan to soap and deodorant, and the other day, while I was gone, he finally changed his clothes. Now he's wearing Larry's gray flannel shirt and old corduroys. He looks so normal. Sometimes I glance up from my magazine and forget it's not just Larry sitting there drinking his beer. He's not bad-looking. Technically, he's a married man, but even more technically, his second wife died 300 years ago. Then there's this. He had 20 children. He's clearly very fertile, and any child of his would be a musical genius. His sons certainly were, and his daughters might have been, given the chance. Could that be the reason this happened, so I can have his daughter and give her a decent shot at life? The question, then is how to seduce an 18th-century German.
0: Rebecca Mackay with an excerpt from her story Couple of Lovers on a Red Background. It appears in her new collection, Music for Wartime. And you're listening to The Dinner Party Download from American Public Media.
2: And now, the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. So, Rico, have you ever liked a dog so
0: much that you wanted to take it out to dinner?
2: Well, as you know, I'm a cat guy. So. Oh, yeah, that's yeah, right.
0: You know. Notoriously lousy dinner companions. They, don't,
2: they always <laughs> use the wrong fork.
0: That's right. Well, a lot of dog <laughs> owners do want to take their pets out to restaurants. Which you
2: can do in California, I should know. That's true, but
0: not in New York yet. Just last week, the state legislature passed a bill that, if signed into law, would allow dogs to hang out with their owners in eateries. Mm -hmm. So, to discuss the pros and cons of dining canines, I invited Greg Morabito, New York editor of food website Eater, to join me at a Brooklyn restaurant that would be affected by the law.
8: There are a lot of rules related to dining and a lot of reasons why restaurateurs can get fined. And I guess this is one of the ways that they could get you know, fined and it could potentially hurt restaurateurs. So I think this is like actually kind of helping them out a little bit and making it just a little bit more lenient. They have so much pressure on them. There are so many rules. It's like almost impossible to keep track of them. Um, and even some of them are so arcane and outdated they just don't make any sense anymore. So. I think this is like actually you know, a play to kind of help them out. All right. Well, that's one reason they're getting rid of the dog ban. Why was the dog ban in effect in the first place? Well, I think it's a sanitation issue that you're not really supposed to have animals around where you're serving food. I mean, you still will never be able to bring a dog inside where they're serving food unless it's a service dog. So I'm assuming they kind of made it open and lax, this rule, because if you're sitting outside at a cafe, a dog might just walk by you, and that is basically the same thing as having a dog right next to you. Restaurants are not preparing food outside, usually. I think that the rule existed in the first place, because if you're going into a restaurant, it's closer to the kitchen, it's closer to where they're preparing the food or making the drinks, dander, or whatever germs or dog bacteria could get on the inside of the restaurants.
0: Yeah, but there's a difference between someone walking by and smoking a cigarette than someone sitting next to you and smoking a cigarette. And as someone who has allergies, I'm telling you having a dog immediately next to you will induce sneezing, as opposed to just having a dog walk by. So there's a difference.
8: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I believe that as part of this new bill, if it's passed, restaurateurs will get to choose A, whether they actually want to allow dogs outside, B, if they want to allow them in certain areas, basically what rules they want to set up. And so I'm sure that like smart business owners, if they have this dog rule, will say, okay, well, there's a corner here because some people don't want to be around dogs when they're eating. I'm actually one of those people. And that's because uh, I get kind of nervous when I'm around dogs, especially like small ones. You have to kind of pay attention to them. They're moving around all the time and they're really fragile.
0: Beyond the sanitation aspect, having animals on leashes, like bopping around, sniffing food, possibly fighting amongst themselves, can create a really
8: unpleasant atmosphere. Dogs also take up a lot of space. You know, they're unpredictable. It's like that kind of thing. If you're taking a jog down the street and somebody has a dog on a leash, they're taking up maybe six more feet of space. Yeah. You know, and you have to constantly be aware of them. You don't want to hurt them. Yeah. Um, so that's, you know, that's one potential sort of downfall that I see in my eyes as the diner, is that I don't constantly want to have to be aware of everybody's yeah. dogs. I mean, it's, it's, it's different with kids, you know what I mean? Because that's another human being, and the parents are really careful about that. But sometimes dog owners just let them do whatever they want, you know? So your website wrote a piece about cat owners who are complaining that the law is unfair
0: because it discriminates against cats. Only dogs are now allowed.
8: I think it is unfair to discriminate cats. but The thing is, is that very few people take their cats outside of their apartments or their houses. I mean, sometimes you do see cats on leashes. Like, I know there's one guy in my neighborhood that walks his cat every day. I think that maybe they excluded cats just because you know it was an extra bit of legislation and some extra language that might have kind of junked up the bill and maybe made it a little bit harder for them to push it through. I want to point out one other part of this bill. Part of it forbids, quote, communal pet drinking bowls,
0: which means that if a dog wants water, a restaurant will have to provide it its own bowl, and that was put in there to prevent, I'm guessing, chaos between dogs, splashing, et cetera, which says to me, the people who support this bill know in their hearts that this is going to be messy. These are You're bringing animals to an eating establishment.
8: Yeah, see, I would think that a lot of restaurateurs from an operations standpoint, because of that specific bit of business that they have to have the individual dishes, I think a lot of them would just say, you know what, it's not worth it. It's going to be it's gonna be too much extra work. Like, are we really gonna see a bump? Or are our customers really gonna love our restaurant that much more if we allow that? You're thinking the market is gonna take care of this one way or the other. Yeah, I think so, definitely. And you know, it, I, was, I was thinking about someone who's not asthmatic. You know, what would be the scenario in which I would be totally, you know, chill and cool to have dogs around? And I think that maybe a good rule might be only during brunch, because brunch is like chaos anyway. It's just like a free for all where people do whatever they want. Some people, you know, eat a nice meal. Some people get wasted, and you know, on mimosas. Some people just sit with an empty cup and talk to their friends for hours. You know, so I think dogs could maybe fit into that milieu very easily.
0: I'm anti-brunch for many of the reasons you mentioned. It's like a free-for-all. It's bedlam. People drinking too much, spending too much money, fighting in line. So maybe let's leave that to the dogs. And, Rico, lest anyone think I have anything against dogs, let it right. be known that I was partially raised by a dachshund <laughs> named Doxy. Oh, That's true,
2: yeah. That would explain why you chase badgers. <laughs> and have a great sense of smell. Do you? All right. Folks, coming up, we learn about the talented and troubled Nina Simone, and actor Joe Manganiello answers your etiquette questions when the Dinner Party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, Public Radio's Arts and Leisure section. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Coming
0: up, we speak with Liz Garvis, director of a new documentary about the music and travails of the great Nina Simone.
3: For Nina Simone, it was sanity. It was family. It was the commercial side of her career. She paid a huge price.
0: That's in just a few minutes. But first, it's time for our weekly etiquette lesson.
2: Yes, each week you send in your questions about how to behave. And here to answer them this week is Joe Manganello. He is probably best known as the werewolf... Is it Alcide? Alcide, yeah. Alcide. Not Cid. No. That's, Which is,
0: that's a great bar in L.A. Yeah, He
2: is not a bar, he's a werewolf. And the smash HBO series <laughs> True Blood. And of course he also plays Richie, one of the tribe of male strippers whose lives were portrayed with surprising sweetness and intelligence in the hit film Magic Mike. That movie wound up on a bunch of critics' top ten lists. Joe reprises the role in the new sequel, Magic Mike XXL. Joe, it is a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Great to be here. So, a lot's been made about the obvious beefcake appeal of these movies. But as I said, they're very smart. They portray this very warm friendship between the guys in this troop of strippers. I will say, this one is a lot lighter in tone than the first one. Tell us a little bit about the the process behind making that decision. The first movie was had to service this love story and have an indie feel
1: to it because yeah. I think when you're when you're the first male stripper movie <laughs> that I think <laughs> there us. is a, a bit of the, you have to take the critics in, in into play I think you know once it came out everybody enjoyed it we looked at each other and said let's do another one but have this one be about the guys mm-hmm. and let's take the chains off and and get wild and make the movie that I think people really wanted to see or expected to see oh, the first really? time
2: around this is
1: like the dam breaking it's like let's get these shirts off uh, I wouldn't say that, but I think that the the idea of male stripping is inherently funny. And I think where the first one gave all of the reasons why why someone would want to leave that lifestyle. It was almost yes. like a, like a Saturday night fever. Like, you're the king of this world, but outside of that bubble, you're nothing. The second movie gives all of the reasons why... You would never want to leave that lifestyle.
0: Well, so after the first film, Magic Mike, you decided to make a documentary about male strippers. What most surprised you about that world when you actually took a close look at it? How damn likable
1: these guys were. Most of them came from really great, nice families. Uh, Bible Belt it, it took place in Dallas, Texas. So, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, God-fearing, like really, you know, sweet, nice people people and good guys, um, who were former athletes who were struggling at jobs that didn't pay a lot of money. And someone would say to them, Hey, you're in great shape and you're athletic and you could make more money doing this. And they're 23, 24, 25 sure. years old. And yeah. I mean, this is the greatest job I could ever imagine. Having. Oh <laughs> yeah. my God. It's like being a rock star. You get to train like a professional athlete. And, uh, you know, one of the guys in fact, was a 55 year old male stripper named Randy the Master Blaster,
3: <laughs> who had been stripping consecutively <laughs> since
1: 1979. Damn! Wow! Uh, and he loved it, and has made uh, he's he now mentors and tutors and coaches the other guys, much like McConaughey's character did in in the first in the yeah, original like, Magic Mike. Yeah. So it was a fascinating work, and he lives with his mom who was 78 years old who answered the phones from 10 to 6 for their stripper gram company. <laughs> oh, <my God. laughs> who just loves them to death, you know, and wow. is his nutritionist. So it's it's not what you think.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. I guess So Brent... Rico and I still have a chance. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> I think we're out of
2: the business after this interview. <laughs> because
0: we are, ridi- you can acknowledge this, Joe, we're ridiculously cut yeah. specimens. You're one of us. Yeah. Ripped. <laughs> Maybe it's a good moment to uh, turn to our etiquette questions. Oh, yeah. All right, at least. First not. question comes from Chris in Williamsburg, Virginia, Chris's question is, how many buttons at the top of a button-up shirt should one be allowed to unbutton at a dinner party? Oh, there boy.
1: There um, I think anything that keeps you out of Miami Vice territory. I see. <laughs> I think. But, but what does that entail? Is I that think... like a couple of inches of chest? Or... Didn't he wear T-shirts? I think you could. Yeah, that's actually true. Uh, well, then Cuban drug lord. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, I think you could go top button, next button, down. Past that, you, I mean, what am I doing right now? I, don't yeah. know. <laughs> I think you're safe with the two. If you get into okay. the third, I think it's about button placement because not all shirts are the mm-hmm. same. So you can't. I think that, that gets into the judgment call.
2: So yeah, two you, is like... Use the
0: nipples as a guideline. You want to be above them. <laughs> yeah.
2: Keep it above the nipples. Yeah, That I think okay. we can all agree on. All right. And here's something from Tim in Phoenix, Arizona. Tim writes, When a friend works nights... Say he's a fireman or a performer or a vampire, etc. <laughs> is it all right to throw a breakfast bash for his birthday? More generally, what is the best way to celebrate with someone who is asleep when most of us are awake? Mm. And you did shoot a lot at night, right, in oh, True Play? and you have no idea. I mean, I
1: remember falling asleep at a red light oh and uh, driving home from Seriously? from from Malibu. You were okay apparently. Yeah, but it was scary when you come to and you oh, you know, you're in a car and your foot is depressed on on the brake pedal. Oh
2: my god. Uh,
1: so I would say maybe send a car service to break
2: <laughs> <laughs> No, <I'm, laughs> that does sound like a good idea actually.
1: Uh, no, but I'm all for mixing it up, you know. Um, I mean, heck, I was a big fan of the breakfast date. You don't have to go to dinner. You can go to breakfast. So I just think it's don't keep that person up if they want to yeah. go to sleep. I would wait for the day off. To be honest with but, you, but, okay. yeah,
0: I was gonna say when you wait for the day off, because isn't yeah. there? Doesn't it sound wrong to your ears a breakfast bash? I mean, it's like how wild can we get here, guys? Yeah, we can we get we just pretty got to... pretty wild at <laughs> breakfast time. We're talking All right. to to guy in You're true blood. You're talking how yeah. hot sauce on the.
2: Eggs Florentine. (laughs) Is that a euphemism? (laughs) Do what you gotta do. (laughs) Uh, Here's something from Not Gonna Tell You What It Is, Sorry, Not Even For Joe in Chicago. This guy is not going to tell you what his name is. He says, oh, I see why. I've been given a nickname that I'm not a fan of, and it has taken root. How do I kill that one? Or maybe better, how do I get myself a new one? I don't know why he's asking Joe, which is a pretty straightforward nickname.
0: Well, I think he has a pretty interesting nickname in the movie. Oh well, that's true. We can't talk about that.
2: Is that what? I can't talk about that on the air. Well, I noticed you called me Richie. (laughs) Yep. It's it's well, we can bleep it. Your name is Big (laughs) Richie. Yes, in the movie,
1: or in the Latin market, Ricardo
0: Grande. (laughs) Um, <laughs> see, it seems so much more elegant right. that way. But the point is, what, do we have any advice for? Uh, we're not going to tell you what it is. Well, I
1: think time. I think you just, you know, for years wherever I went, it was uh, Wolfman or oh, really? Le Lugaru or El Hombre Lobo, whatever all the wolf stuff was. And now I'm Big <laughs> Richie, so <laughs> uh, all that like werewolf iron. stuff <laughs> <laughs> goes away. So I would say get out there. Get on your horse <laughs> <laughs> and uh, do something uh, yeah. worthy of a better Just nickname. Just do two man.
0: major motion pictures and, and get it uh, done. Yeah,
1: my mom. My mom has a T-shirt that says "Big Richie's mom." <laughs> that she wears the Starbucks in Pittsburgh.
0: So when, when you're in trouble, does your mom call you by your full nickname? Like, Big <laughs> Richard, get in yeah. here. <laughs> exactly. Did you
1: leave these toys on the floor?
0: Well, there you go. You just got to gotta work harder, Chicago. Um, all right, another question. This one comes from yeah. Patrick in Santa Monica. Oh, my God. Patrick writes, you wear these often in the movies. Is there a more PC term for a, quote, wife beater shirt? Mm. Please say yes. That term grosses me out. Well, actually, technically
2: they're called A-shirts. That's right.
0: Ah, there it is.
2: I only realized that after I finally went and and got some. I never really wore them because I'm a shrimp. I finally got (laughs) some and it was like, A-shirts? What the hell are those? Guys, I never understood. The only reason I wear
0: a T-shirt is to absorb sweat, not to be gross here, and an Mm. A-shirt doesn't work. There's no cotton in the critical part of your body where you sweat. So what is the role of the A-shirt? You're absolutely
1: right. It does fall into the category of useless articles of clothing. Much like, you know, I found out that essential to a male stripper's wardrobe is the sleeveless hoodie. Oh, interesting. <laughs> like, to keep you warm with yep. the hood on it, but you don't have sleeves yep. to keep your yeah. arms warm. Yeah, it keeps your arms yeah. icy cool.
0: So what is that all about? I think that's so you can cover your head when your mom's wearing her big <laughs> Richie T-shirt next to you.
2: <laughs> there you go, form follows function. Joe Meganello, thank you so much for being here today and telling our audience how to behave, I think. Yeah, there's your etiquette tips for the day. Joe Manganiello, he stars in the new movie Magic Mike XXL. Just follow the sound of happily screaming women to your nearest multiplex, you'll find it.
0: Yes, and if after watching it you need further advice about what item of clothing you shouldn't wear and how to politely rip them off your body, just Hmm. send
2: us an email via our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. And please don't ask for photos of us working out because the sight of our overpumped, rippling six-packs we found Mm -hmm. just makes people feel super bad about their own bodies. Nina Simone, the singer known as the High Priestess of Soul, is the subject of a new documentary released this week on Netflix called What Happened, Miss Simone? That's right. And this week,
0: I had a chance to talk with its director, Liz Garbus. Mm. We should note, part of our conversation was about a Simone song that used strong language to condemn racist violence. Given the context, we thought it was important not to censor that language. Sensitive listeners be warned. But I started by asking her to tell me about the singer's life before she was Nina Simone.
3: Nina Simone was born Eunice Wayman in Tryon, North Carolina. She was a prodigy. She was a classical pianist. Mm. And she was embraced. She was growing up in the Jim Crow South, but she was embraced by the white community who decided to uh, take up a collection and and pay for her classical music education. This got her all the way through to a year at Juilliard here in New York City. Uh, Then the money ran out, and Eunice Wayman had to support her family who had moved to be near her. So she started playing in bars to make a living
0: down in Atlantic City, right? In Atlantic like City. Clubs, yeah,
3: but her parents were church people, and the idea of their classical pianist daughter playing in bars was not something that would have sat well for them. Hmm. Eunice Wayman changed her name to Nina Simone.
0: She became incredibly popular uh, because of her interpretations of standard songs. You've talked to so many people for this movie. What, how would you describe her gift?
3: Well, there are so many things. You know, the way that she would reinvent these standards. Yeah. Um, and she didn't fuse classical into jazz and blues and, you know, kind of create something anew from something you thought you knew so well. I mean, yeah. that was really magical. Her big hit was Porgy in 1958 that put her on the charts. Um, And her interpretations of songs had such deep emotion that there was something very cathartic about them for the listeners. And I think you felt kind of understood. Mm. You felt that she, you know, if you were down or wherever you were, she'd been there. I love you,
5: Porgy. Let him
10: handle me and drive me mad
4: If you can
10: keep me,
8: I want to stay With you forever, and I'll be glad Yes, I love you, pokey
0: She makes it. She becomes very popular nationwide. And then she meets her husband, mm. who became her manager. Um,
3: Never a good idea.
0: Yeah, well, t- <laughs> yes, as we know from music history, uh, yes. we're laughing, but it's actually a sad story. Tell us about him and and their relationship.
3: So, well, Nina, I should say, Nina was married briefly before she met Andy Stroud. Uh, but Andy Stroud was the long, significant relationship in her life. He was a New York City police officer. Met her at a club, and there was an immediate attraction. He gave her, the, you know, she gave him her, him her number, and it was on. Um, Or actually, as he says, he was eating a hamburger plate and she dipped into the fries, and then it was on. (laughs) So this was a very charged relationship. And Andy, when he saw Nina, he decided to leave his career as a police lieutenant and begin to manage her. It seems he was quite a brilliant manager. Um, He got the business very, very quickly. But you know, as his daughter would say, and uh, you know, Nina will will also says in the film, he was also a bully, and there was domestic violence that spilled over into the daughter's life and yeah. in all over Nina's life, and it's documented in her journals and diaries and in some of the private tapes we found of Nina Simone.
0: Her journals also show her increasingly enfeebled mental state in the early '60s. There, there's the abuse, there's exhaustion from working too much but also signs of mental illness. How do you make sense of all of that emotional turmoil?
3: Yeah, you can't separate them. I mean, all of them, you know, I've had people ask me, like, what came first? You know, the abuse or the mental illness, the mental illness or the, you know, how does the activism fill in the drug? You know, and and you can't separate any of them. I mean, here it was a time where, I mean, I think now if we looked at Nina Simone, you know, probably a layperson might say that sounds like bipolar disorder you know she's massively depressed and then goes through manic moments and you know has a has a tremendous sex drive i mean yeah. she would describe having sex attacks yeah. um and that you know those are all classic bipolar symptoms but then you know of course that terminology didn't exist so here was a woman you know sort of struggling with these enormous mood swings in a relationship that was violent i mean you see in her diaries she talks about hating herself mm-hmm. perhaps her staying in that relationship was a form of self-hatred and then of course there's the rage Of the times. Yes. Um, And all of these things are commingling, and and you can't separate them.
0: So at some point, she attaches that rage to the civil rights movement. Her friendship with Lorraine Hainsbury, the woman who wrote uh, Raisin in the Sun, a social activist and playwright, made her more politically aware. And then, after the bombings in Birmingham that led to the Birmingham riots, she sits down and writes Mississippi Goddamn, this song that is— political, it's angry, it's direct, and it launches a whole new phase in her life and her career.
3: That's right. I mean, Mississippi Goddamn was an absolutely pivotal uh, song, a moment in Nina Simone's career. She said when she grew up, nobody talked about race. Um, You all knew it, but you didn't talk about it. And uh, I think in the Birmingham church bombing, it just poured out of her. I mean, that's what she said. She said she wrote the song in 15 minutes. Yeah. And it expressed the rage of a lifetime um, of existing in Jim Crow South and um, of also the community of intellectuals that she was around who were, you know, awakening her to radical thinking of the time. You know, she was Lemarine Hansberry, it was, it was James Baldwin, it was Stokely Carmichael, Miriam McAeba. You know, everything changed. It would never be a simple career for Nina Simone.
1: The name of this
4: tune is Mississippi Goddamn. And I mean every word
2: of it.
1: Alabama's gotten me so upset Tennessee made me lose my rest And everybody knows about Mississippi goddamn.
0: So her got anger and intensity found a worthy target, and it did bring her some sense of peace. She says something like, I was finally singing for my people, and that's what I was meant to do. But meanwhile, this rage was ravaging other parts of her life, and her mood swings were getting worse.
3: I mean, I think life on the road, um, and also the yeah, the demands of being that spokesperson for a people. It was I don't want to say it was too much for her because clearly it wasn't, and she no. survived and there were so many of artists of her generation who died young. Yeah. You know, and I've had yeah. people say to me when I said I made a film about Nina Simone who don't know, they you know, they didn't know that she lived to seventy years old. Yeah. So she did survive, but it took a huge toll. And you know, we all know that mental illness is also environmentally instigated. It's not just biochemistry, mm-hmm. all these things play together. Mm-hmm. And the extreme stressors of the movement, um, you know, those that those are things that would could bring out um, vulnerabilities in anyone. I'll say Malcolm X's oldest daughter said, you know, everyone paid a price for their involvement in that movement. It took a toll on all of us. For them, you know, they lost their father. That was the ultimate price. But for Nina Simone, it was sanity. It was family. It was the commercial side of her career. She paid a huge price.
0: And you tell that story at greater length in this documentary, What Happened, Miss Simone. Liz Garbus, thanks for coming by and chatting with us.
3: Thank you for having me. Say love me,
1: leave me, let me be lonely. You won't believe me but I love you only. I'd rather be lonely than happy with somebody else.
0: Liz Garbus,
2: her new documentary is called What Happened, Miss Simone, and it's out on Netflix now. All right, and ladies and gentlemen, that's the Dinner Party download for this week. Our producer is Jackson Musker, our associate producer is Nina Patak, and our associate digital producer is Christina Lopez. Thanks also to Chris Clark and Ravi Carmen, who engineered this time around. Peter Clowney is our executive producer. If you like the show, please stop by iTunes and leave a message saying so. It just takes a second
0: and it really helps us out. And since turnabout is fair play, sign up for our newsletter at dinnerpartydownload.org and we will send you a weekly message, Uh including a cocktail recipe, news about upcoming events, and random lists of stuff we like.
2: Thanks for listening. Bon appétit.